And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 17 this morning. Matthew 17. So we study through the Gospel of Matthew together. One thing we have seen is that the disciples' minds have just been blown. They have come to a point where they have acknowledged their faith in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is back in chapter 16, verse 16. And then they go from that, the acknowledgement that Jesus is the Son of the living God, to Him saying, beginning in verse 21, from that time on that He begins to show them that He must suffer and die. And they are just struggling to comprehend how these two things could be both true. That He is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and yet He says, the Son of Man must suffer in Jerusalem and die and be raised again. And what Jesus was telling them was supposed to help prepare them for when that darkest day came. But even still, when that day happened, they were reeling from it. They just couldn't wrap their minds around it. In fact, it wasn't even until He rose from the dead that it became clear to them that He had been telling them that the Messiah must suffer and die And this is not some strange upending of God's plan. This is what He said all along. He had told them. And in fact, it so encouraged them that when He was finally taken away from them out of their sight up into the clouds, they believed and had confidence that He went into the glories of heaven and was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in fact, as Jesus would later teach His disciples when they were walking after His resurrection on the road to Emmaus, that all along, from the very beginning, the Scripture had prophesied this, that it was necessary, first of all, for the Messiah to suffer, and then subsequently that He would enter into His glory. And so, friends, mark it down. This is not some sort of historical revisionism that reinterpreted some religious disappointment to try to keep up the charade of truth. These people were told clearly by the Lord Jesus, this is what the Messiah must suffer. And they were shown that it must be so from all of the Old Testament Scriptures. Let ever your faith be shaken by someone who says, well... Jesus wasn't who He claimed to be. It was His disciples later on that sort of made all this up. No, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Scriptures before Him prophesied exactly what was to happen. But for now, the disciples were really struggling to comprehend, to reconcile their messianic faith with these predictions about His suffering. And it's at their moment of greatest struggle that God grants them a vision to encourage their faith. And this is a sort of a preview of His glory. And that's what is in our text for today. 
chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he was still, and he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must, uh, first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is uh, probably one of the most well-known accounts in the life of Jesus, uh, the great transfiguration of our Lord. And if you look back in chapter 16, verse 28, right before this, Jesus had told the disciples who were with Him, He said to them, Some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. He had earlier spoken of coming with His angels in the glory of His Father. And and many interpreters think that that is a reference solely to This, what's happening now, the transfiguration. And while that is possible, I argued last Sunday afternoon that I think that what Jesus means when He says, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming, is that He is referring to His glorification, His exaltation and enthronement in heaven. In fact, the whole period between His resurrection and His parousia, His coming, His second coming again someday. This is the period of His his glory, His exaltation. In fact, at His trial, Jesus said that His coming would be seen from now on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that He will reign, and He is reigning until He puts all of His enemies under His feet. Now that kingdom of Christ, Jesus' kingdom, His end-time kingdom, His glory, His coming, happens in two stages. First, 
His heavenly enthronement where He sits down at the right hand of the throne of God and that inaugurates the kingdom of God. Though for now, His kingship, His personal reign remains largely invisible in the world. The second stage of His kingdom is that final revealing of the kingdom, the unveiling of the king when he comes again. And we refer to that as the second coming. And and, and in fact, he's going to go on later in this book and he's going to tell some parables that indicate that that they should expect a delay between the inauguration and the consummation of the kingdom of God. They should expect that. But these are two stages of the same thing. That is the kingdom of Christ. So I'm going to put on the screen a definition of the kingdom of God. We looked at it before earlier in the book. This is one of the great themes of the book of Matthew. He presents Jesus as the great king uh, coming in his kingdom. And I can get it to work. Can you, can you make it work back there with your magic? No? All right. Well, we'll we'll do that later then. Wait. Oh, well, we got to wait. All right. So, the kingdom. The kingdom is Christ's end time reign over this world uh, as the obedient Son of Man, glorified in God's presence as King over all of the nations of the world that is inaugurated at His coming and His glorification. Oh, there we go. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is God's end time rule over all things through His Son and chosen King, the man Christ Jesus, for His eternal glory and the everlasting good of all His faithful subjects, inaugurated with the coming and heavenly enthronement of the King, progressively manifest among the nations in this age and visibly and fully consummated at His glorious appearing. So, the king came. He is exalted into heaven, seated on His throne. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God in terms of this end-time kingdom that Christ came to bring. It is progressively revealed now as Christ rules and reigns from heaven. And it is fully consummated when His kingdom is manifest, when it's unveiled at the great revelation in the last day. And so this is the kingdom of God. Now for us, the kingdom of God is, well, it's already inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. We live in this sort of middle space between the beginning of the kingdom and yet waiting for the fullness of the kingdom. But for the disciples, all of it was yet to come. Christ had not yet ascended into His glory. He was still on earth suffering. In fact, He had much suffering yet to come. But the Father gave to those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, a glorious and gracious preview of that kingdom, that glory, that coming of Jesus Christ. And the transfiguration was not that coming, I think, the transfiguration was not that coming that was prophesied. 
by our Lord at the end of chapter 16, but it was a preview of it, particularly of that final revelation of His coming, the parousia, which is probably why Jesus calls it in verse 9 a vision. This is a vision of what is yet to come, the glories of Jesus. His kingdom not inaugurated until His glorification, but while it's near, it's still yet future for them. And so Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about this until after the what? After the resurrection. Because that is when the Son of Man comes into His own. That's when all that you have seen will come to pass. And you are getting to see a preview of that. As Peter will write later in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, listen to this, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when, we re- when He received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him out of the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Peter writes, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, and we were with Him on the holy mountain, and we have the, more, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. So here in Matthew 17 is the record of that event that so confirmed Peter's hope in the glorious coming of Christ's kingdom. And I think as such it can encourage our own hope in the coming of Christ and in His glory Though we do not see Him, we love Him, and we believe in Him. So we're going to take a look this morning at this great event and what happened. And and I want you to see four things. Um, Well, we'll see three of them today. I was going to do four, and I just decided we we don't have time. So here here they are between now and next week. What these men saw. Secondly, what they heard. Thirdly, how they processed it. And fourthly, what all of this means for us. Now, first of all, what did the disciples see? Well, they go up into this mountain. This is Peter, James, and John, kind of Jesus' inner circle. Um, They also appear with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's these three men he brings with him at these most intimate times, at the height of his glorious transfiguration and at the depth of his most painful um, temptation. And... These men are with him now. Though all of the apostles will be the foundation of the church, there are leaders among leaders, I guess you might say. Men who led the way, and Peter and James and John certainly were among them. Jesus takes these men up to a high mountain, and um, tradition says that it's a place called Mount Tabor. Uh, When I was in Israel many years ago, we got to go and well, see the mountain from afar anyway. Um, and it's, it's uh, in the northern part of, the, uh, of the, uh, the country of Israel. We don't know for sure if that's the place. Nobody knows for sure. God didn't give us exactly the place, but it, it was a, uh, a high mountain. And mountains are 
very often in the scriptures symbolic places of communion with God. Um, God descends to commune with man, and man, when he communes with God, is like not quite on this earth anymore. He's in an exalted place, a holy place. Uh, in fact, the Garden of Eden was probably on a mountain. So says, or implies, at least, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 28. This is the holy place where God met with His people, Adam and Eve, at the very beginning. Mount Sinai, Moses goes up into the mountain, remember, to meet with God and come down to give God's Word to His people. Mount Zion in Jerusalem was where the temple was built, on an exalted place. So every time you went to the temple, you went up to the temple. And when Daniel has the vision of the coming messianic kingdom, he sees a, a mountain growing, as it were, until it fills up the whole earth. So these places are, are, this is kind of a theme that runs throughout all of the Scripture. And the Lord takes these men to this mountain to see this vision. This mountain becomes another holy place where Jesus will be transfigured. It says that what they saw was a transfiguration. His appearance was changed. It was made different in a moment. His face began to shine like the sun and his clothes were bright like the light itself. A few weeks ago, I think I gave the illustration, or maybe it was last week, of Superman. Clark Kent, as it were, on the outside, but who he is underneath is hidden and veiled until he goes into the phone booth and pulls off his old clothes and there he is, clearly Superman. And it is like at the top of this mountain that God sort of parted the veil of his flesh so that they may see his glory shining through in all of his holiness. He was giving them a preview of Christ's end-time glory as the exalted Son and eternal Son of God, exalted Son of Man. For that's the glory that struck Saul blind on the road to Damascus. Remember that story? Christ appeared to him and the glory was overwhelming. Here is the Son of God clothed in light. Just as... Psalm 104 says that God is, Psalm 104 verse 2, God or Yahweh is wrapped in light as in a garment. As the Father dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy chapter 6, whom no one has seen nor can see, God is, is light, He is holy, and now here is Jesus and, and, and He is clothed with light. Even, the Bible says, even the bright angels of heaven that surround God's throne have to cover their eyes with their wings lest they behold the blinding glory of God. Sometimes we sing immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most Blessed, most glorious, the Ancient of Days, Almighty, victorious, Thy great name we praise. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, 
Thine angels adore Thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render. Oh, help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light that hideth Thee. Imagine or remember the brightest light that you've ever experienced. Maybe it was when you were out on a bright sunny day. Have you ever been up in the snow where the snow covers the mountain? And the sun is shining and it's a clear day and it's high noon. And I've been out where it's been so bright that I, my eyes were so squinty that I, I, finally they just closed. I just literally could not keep my eyes open. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Now that's just a tiniest glimpse. Let me tell you, that is just the tiniest glimpse of what it would be like in a, in a physical way, just a glimpse of what it would be like to be in the presence of the unfiltered holiness of God. The one true and living God, the Almighty, the Creator of everything. He's, His glory is all-consuming. It would kill you if you were exposed to it. You believe me? It is true. God is absolutely holy and pure and righteous and almighty, such that for any sinner to be exposed to his unfiltered holiness would be absolute death and destruction. When God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, he said, No one may see me and live. Listen, listen. Do you think about God like that? Now, we're accustomed to coming to God. One of the brothers prayed this morning, God, we come to you, privileged to call you our what? Father. And that is a holy privilege for everyone who is his son in union with the one only begotten son. But let me tell you, apart from... Apart from Christ, being in the presence of God is, is, a, is not a, a glorious thing for a sinner. It is a, it is a fearful thing. And I just, I don't think we can imagine it enough to be in awe like we should. And, I, and you'll see it in a number of places in the Scripture. Just get a little bit of a glimpse on a kind of a human sort of level, a kind of a parable level of what it must be like for a man to stand before the almighty judge of the universe, the creator of all, the, the heavenly king, the one who is not dependent on anything, but the one who is in himself entirely self-sufficient, the one who is absolutely pure, the one who is the very definition of righteousness and purity and holiness and goodness. What must it be like to stand before such a God? But John, one of these three guys, would later on say, we have seen His glory and the glory that we saw was the glory as of the only Son of the Father. It, we saw, we saw 
the glory that was just like the glory of God. And then he goes on to say, no one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. John chapter 1. So here is the light of God's glory mediated through Jesus Christ. So that these men could stand there and behold their God and live to tell about it. Because God's glory came to them in the person of Jesus. And these men, these three guys, would never ever be the same. I mean, you can just read some of the things that they wrote, some of the things that John wrote and Peter wrote especially about their experience. This was a life-shaping event for them, for them to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And like Moses, who was hidden in the crevice finally, and saw, as it were, the trailing edge of God's glory, who came down from the mountain, remember, with his face glowing, just in the reflected glory of God. These men were able to behold something of the glory of the Almighty. And speaking of Moses, Moses appears up there on top of the mountain. That's another thing that they see. They see Moses along with, of course, Elijah the prophet. Their identities doubtless apparent from their clothing, their manner, and especially from the conversations that they're having with Jesus, the apostles bore witness to for a little bit. One of the other gospels said they talked about Jesus' exodus, which is an interesting thing to talk about with Moses, about the exodus. This was Christ's exodus. So why these two men? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, a number of guesses have been made, but I think the clearest is that these two men were precursors of the end times, the last days, the day of the Lord, which is inaugurated with the coming of Christ. Right In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. These men were precursors of the last days. There were two passages in particular that were particularly important for this expectation that Moses and Elijah would, would foreshadow the, the end times. Number one, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, and that's talking about Elijah. And the Lord says, Behold, I will send Elijah. Of course, this is many years after Elijah's literal earthly existence. But God says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, later, coming down off the mountain, verses 9 and following, the disciples are going to ask Jesus about Elijah, about that prophecy, the expectation that Elijah would come again in the end times, whether this was a fulfillment of that, and what about that restoration of all things that, that's prophesied, the, the turning back of, 
the restoration of families, and of course Jesus is going to ultimately bring the restoration of all things. What about all of that? And he'll explain more to that to them about more about that to them. We'll, we'll probably save that for next time. But there's the prophecy of Elijah, who would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then there is a second prophecy, and I'll put it up on the screen, and that is from Deuteronomy chapter 18. This was a key passage um, in the uh, expectation of the people of God. And in this passage, God promised through Moses that he would raise up a new Moses-like prophet. And here's what he said, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them, to the people, all that I command him and whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So there was this expectation among the Jews that in the end time, God would send Elijah to prepare the way for the restoration and that God would raise up a great Moses-like prophet. And now here they are on top of the mountain beholding the dazzling glory of God just like Moses who also was taken up into a mountain to commune with God. And remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, there were It was a great cloud and lightning and flashes of thunder and a voice from heaven. And here they are. And Peter is just looking at this thing. and You know, good old Peter, he he doesn't quite know what to say, but he wants to say something. He just feels like he should contribute somehow to this. And like he often does, he just speaks out for the other guys. And he says, Lord, let us, let us make some, some tents for you three. Three tents, one for each of you, some, some sort of shelter, kind of a, a brush arbor, maybe like they made for the Feast of Booths or something. You know, let, let's, let's build something so, so that you... you know, what, what does he say? I don't, he doesn't even know what he's saying. In fact, the other gospel writer, Matthew's a little bit generous to him. The other gospel writer said Peter didn't know what he was saying. He just didn't know what to say, so he said something. As if, you know, he could somehow shelter these men who were, you know, glowing in the very presence of God themselves anyway, as if they need... And as if these three are just kind of all maybe sort of on the same plane. You know, here's, here's Moses and Elijah and Jesus and, and three booths and, and, and it's in the middle of all of this, right, that mercifully God stops him short. In fact, it says that while he was still speaking, a great bright cloud came and covered the top of that mountain and overshadowed them. Much like the mountain, much like the cloud, excuse me, that led uh, Israel and Moses. Remember, through the wilderness, it was a cloud of a pillar of fire by night. Much like the cloud of fire and lightning that covered the top of Mount Sinai, when Moses went up to commune with God, these men have been covered in the luminous glory of God. And so that brings us then, secondly, to what the apostles heard now. What did they hear? 
And it says, they heard a voice from the cloud that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then their response, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That's a good translation. Have you ever been so scared you fell down flat on your face? I don't know if you've ever been that scared. You literally just fell, your knees buckled and you just fell on the floor. Maybe you've been that sad. These men were that terrified. They literally could not stand. They would not stand before this kind of awesome display of power. They fell down, terrified. I don't know if you and I, I I know we can't. We cannot fully imagine what it would be like to hear the unfiltered voice of the almighty God emanating from the dazzling brightness of a fiery cloud. You just can't even imagine hearing God. Sometimes people say, well, I wish I could hear from God. You know, if God's really out there, why doesn't He speak to me? Listen, if God spoke to you in all of His unfiltered holiness, you would, you would fall to the ground as dead. None of us want that kind of, of experience exactly they fell down terrified. In fact, this, this was the very response of the people at Mount Sinai. You remember that? Moses went up. God brought the cloud. Same experience that they're having now. Um, and God spoke to Moses. And the people heard the voice of God. And what did they say? Don't let God speak to us anymore. They, they were terrified. The people were terrified that they would be utterly consumed by the holiness of the Almighty God. They said again in Deuteronomy 18, let us not hear again the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire anymore lest we die. They said, Moses, we can't handle this. Moses, this is, this is God. He, we cannot stand in His presence. You go for us and speak to God. Moses, go in our place. Go up and talk to God and come down and tell us what He says. Go be our representative. Intercede for us, Moses. And this, let me tell you, this is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. Amen? He speaks to the Almighty God on our behalf. And He speaks to us for God so that God is simultaneously, listen, God is simultaneously both unapproachable in His holiness and near to us in Christ the Mediator. That is what we see on that mountain. God is both unapproachable in His holiness and near to us in Christ our Mediator. That is the Gospel. That's it. God is so holy, He is so pure, He is so other that we could never be in His presence in our sin, in our fallen state. Even while His presence is fullness of joy 
It is light and life. It's like the sun that you depend on for warmth, for light. It's the source of life on this earth. And yet, if you come too near to the sun, it is certain destruction for you because you are just unable to approach it. You need it. You want it. And yet, you are not equipped to go before the sun. The Lord's voice is like thunder in our ears. And yet, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But like Moses, who entered into God's holy presence in order to speak to God face to face, on behalf of the people, we have an eternal mediator, one like us, who is yet able to go into the presence of the holy God on our behalf, to mediate God's word to us so that we can know God, which is life itself, that we can live in the presence of His light and His love Like Moses, who establishes the old covenant, which says, do this and live, Christ enters into the presence of God in order to establish for us the new covenant, which says, it is finished. I have done it. You and I, listen, will never be able to enter into life and light except through the finished work of Jesus Christ, our mediator. It comes by trusting His obedience, His blood, that you can ever stand in the presence of the one who is the source of your life and not end up under His destructive power, the power of His holiness. Those men were able to experience the glory of God because they saw God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way you and I will ever experience the glory of God, both now or in eternity. That's the only way you will ever stand in the presence of God and not be crushed for all eternity. It's the only way that you and I will enter into everlasting life is to come to God through the great mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, And God's last words to those disciples on that mountain were these. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What? Listen to Him. Here in front of you is that new Moses who was prophesied so long ago in Deuteronomy 18. What does Deuteronomy 18 say? I will put my words in this prophet's mouth, and he will speak all that I command him, all that I command him. He will not hold back, and whatever, uh, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. What is he saying there, but what he said on the mountain all of those years later, this is my son, listen to him. Here he is. Here's the new Moses on the mountain bringing you into communion with the Almighty God before whose face you would surely die on your own 
And yet, if you will listen to him, you may draw near to the one who is the source of your life, who is everything that you need. And you may be right with that God. You and I had better be fearful of rejecting the words of Christ. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen, don't harden your hearts to the words of Christ. Don't harden your heart to what Jesus says. Don't let your love for Christ and your obedience to Christ grow cold. Are you hearing me? That is a great temptation for all of us that we would go deaf to the Savior. Don't let that happen. Keep your heart open to Jesus. Be sensitive to His speaking to you. Continue in faith toward Him, listening to everything that He has to say. Oh, friends, listen to the words of Hebrews speaking about that experience on Mount Sinai. Hebrews chapter 12, You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall die. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Those are the words that we need to hear. We guard our hearts. We continue to listen to the Lord Jesus. To look Him in the face. To put our trust in Him. And to see in the Lord Jesus the glory of the Almighty God that is to us life and light. This is God's beloved Son. Listen to Him. Or you will hear the fearful voice of God on the day of judgment. And I love the way the text ends, or where we're going to end anyway. After all the sound and fury, after all of the blinding light and the thunderous voice from heaven, we read that Jesus came and touched them 
And he said, rise. Do not fear. Have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes and they looked. And they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the great hope for you and I, that we may see Jesus. For He is the mediator. He is the one and the only one in whom we can stand before the holiness of God and yet be treated with such tenderness and care and kindness and gentleness and condescension. It is only in Jesus, our mediator, that we can know the love and the grace and the joy of God. So look to Jesus. Always look to Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for revealing to Your disciples and now to us through this preserved text something of Your holiness and especially the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we can come before You. And it is in the name of Jesus and Jesus alone that we approach you now and we pray. Lord, we ask that you would keep us from hardening our hearts against your beloved Son. Please protect us from growing so independent, so caught up in the things of the world, so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that we don't Listen to His voice. Lord, be merciful to us in the face of Jesus Christ, we pray. In His name we ask. Amen.